Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast. Our mission of teaching people to love God by showing them how much He loves us starts right now. Well, tonight I want to talk to you about one of the classics. I call it a classic because you've most likely heard this story before. Uh, if you've grown up in the church, you've, uh, you would probably even possibly say that this is your favorite all-time favorite Old Testament Bible story. And, and I remember, for me, it was definitely mine. In fact, this iconic tale has transcended out of the church circles and made it into the secular world with the title often used to illustrate the little guy, be it a small business or an individual in a company, taking on a giant corporation in some sort of, well, the, the term that they've adopted is a David versus Goliath type of scenario. The against all odds, no chance to win, little guy prevails. It's like David versus Goliath. We've seen it so many different places. And so this story throughout all of history has caught the attention and the imagination of authors and artists, filmmakers and poets alike. I was was reading today that um, Homer's Iliad, might have been loosely based on this story, the, the idea of the Greeks coming and invading the city of Troy, the, the Trojans. And so um, why do you think that uh, this story has gotten, garnered so much attention? Because Hollywood and ourselves, if we're honest, we love an underdog story. Uh, the thought that a person or a team facing an unwinnable or an unbeatable situation can triumph drives us wild. We literally have one of the most successful Christian movies to date based loosely on this story. Anybody heard of Facing the Giants? Uh, remember, it was like, what about our Giants? And, and it was this awesome football movie, and they had the kid blindfolded, crawling. It was like, five more yards. He's like, I can you know. And then we also have a cartoon turned into a terrible movie based on a dog who was a shoe shiner by day and a hero by night called Underdog. Okay, that story has really nothing to do with this. It's just a terrible movie. Don't watch it. But underdog stories are our bread and bo- the bread and butter of almost every sports movie ever created. We love an underdog story. But can I say something about that? While this story on the surface is an underdog story, and the world is going to glean that David and Goliath dynamic from it, behind the scenes is really where we get the good stuff. The meat and potatoes compared to the bread and butter. The substantial, life-changing stuff over the motivational, superficial stuff. And guys, when it comes to the Bible, we need to choose the meat over the sweet. Cotton candy is great, but it doesn't last. The meat means more protein, more muscle, more filling. And you know what's so neat? When you, when you ingest the word, it makes you more hungry. And then you're hungry for the deeper things of God. As Paul said in his writing, he was like, listen, you guys are babes. You desire the pure milk of the word. But what you need to do is you need to get into the meat of the word. And so this may be awkward, but I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, choose meat over sweet. Choose meat over sweet. You know why, guys? Because Facebook theology... Those little, you know, posts that just have the verse that, that actually don't have any depth to them. 
Are they going to be what, what sustains us in the, in the trials, in the tough times of life? You know, and there's nothing wrong with posting a verse on, on Facebook or Instagram. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know, hey, this really spoke to my heart. But if that's the only thing that we're getting, if that's our diet, or if our diet is some of these pastors that are really fluff and no substance, no depth, then what we're going to find is, is uh, our lives are going to be miles wide, but inches deep, zero foundation. And so what we need to do is we need to choose the meat over the sweet. Now, can I ask, is there a place for sweets in the Christian life? Yes, yes, but let's refer to our food nutritional pyramid. You know, it's at the top in the tiny corner. It's sweets. And I looked it up this morning or this, this afternoon, and, and you know what it says about the sweets? It says, use sparingly. And uh, that's, that's hashtag good advice for real life, too. Because if you were to try to live off a diet of sweets, you wouldn't make it. And so when it comes to the Bible... And again, for life, we need to choose meat over the sweet. And, and so underdog stories are great. And for me, no matter how many times I watch Remember the Titans, I geek out when sunshine and the group of integrated heroes win the big game and complete their undefeated season. And, but I believe that there's so much more to this often misunderstood and misinterpreted story in the Bible that David and Goliath is so much more than just about uh, corporations fighting one another or the little guy taking on the big guy. Because if that's all it is, then this could be a TED Talk. And I tell you what, if you've seen the TED Talk that is going around the internet about David and Goliath, turn it off because it is dumb. I'm serious. First and foremost, it's not even coming from a place of faith in God and then the guy goes on, the moral of his story is bring a gunfight or bring a gun to a knife fight. I mean, that's literally what the guy got out of this. And, and I can tell you right now, that is not the moral of the story. So my goal tonight in our short time of study is to try to get a glimpse of the real meaning of this story and how we can apply it to our lives, to grab the substantial over the superficial, something that's going to change us, not something that's just going to make us feel good. So, 1 Samuel 17 finds Israel, the nation of Israel, in an interesting state. You could say that it was, a time, it was in a time of flux, not a ton of stability going on in the nation. What started out great for the Israelites with the anointing and coronation of King Saul has quickly gone south. If you remember, or if you don't, that's okay. Let me, uh, let me catch you up. The nation of Israel from the time of Moses and even Abraham has been in what's called a theocracy where it was governed by God. But they'd have a rough, they've had, they'd had a rough go of it after inhabiting the land in the book of Joshua. And then they went full on off the rails several times in the book of Judges. And so when we get to the book of 1 Samuel, we meet Samuel, who is the last judge of Israel. The people were looking around and saw that the other surrounding nations had kings and they got a, a case of crown envy. And so they wanted a king and they basically went to Samuel and demanded of God for one. God responded, as he often does. He's a gentleman like that. And he gave them exactly what they asked for. He gave them who they asked for. They gave them, 
he gave them Saul, whose name literally means requested one. Now, Saul was the people's champion. He was the captain of the football team, the basketball team, the baseball team. He was even the prom king. How can I say these things? Well, the Bible said that he was head and shoulders taller than anyone else, and he was actually the most handsome man in Israel. If there was an ABC channel back in the day, he would have been the premier bachelor candidate because he was a tall, good-looking man. He was the man of the people. And this guy Saul, he had an amazing start as their king. He had some great victories and he's had some quality leadership decisions. But as time went on, his character really began to show through to the point where Samuel had to go to Saul and just say, listen, we're going to have to pull the plug on this thing because enough is enough. You've You've taken all the glory for yourself. You started to act like a priest. You haven't waited for what God told you to do. And you're listening to your own press clippings. You're reading your own press clippings. You're, you're operating from a place of pride, not a place of humility. And so Samuel told Saul, God has chosen someone else, someone who is after his own heart, instead of someone like you who's always after his own personal credit. Well, that didn't sit well with Saul, and things had been a mess. On top of that, Israel's mortal enemies, the Philistines, have come to battle offering a no-holds-barred, pay-per-view, winner-take-all cage match that no one in the nation to this point has been willing to fight. And that catches us up to 1 Samuel 17. So in verse 1, we read, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were encamped at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. So here we are in Sokka. The Philistines have come up from the coastal area to battle and are encamped on one hill in Ephesimim, and the Israelites are encamped on the other side with a valley between them. And this was a place where uh, the valley was an awesome spot if they were going to meet in battle, and that is where David and Goliath are going to eventually hash it out. And so we're actually right away in verse 4 introduced to Goliath. It says, And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders, Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. Right away, guys, in 1 Samuel 17, we're introduced to the antagonist of our story, Goliath the giant. This guy, he's a huge homie. He's over nine feet tall. And then on top of that, he's decked out in battle array. He's got all the weapons, all the armor, all the accessories that you could ask for. A helmet, a coat of mail, leg armor, and this tripped me out, presumably depending on the height of his adversaries, the height of the people that he would battle against, almost as tall as those who would fight him. 
And then he had a bronze javelin with an iron spearhead. All in all, his armor and weapons were estimated to weigh between 150 to 200 pounds. Now, for a dude to carry all of that and still be able to maneuver and fight is impressive. That means not only was he big, but he's also strong. I can't help being a fan of 80s action films. Uh, I can't help but picturing maybe the training montage that he'd gone through as a boy growing up in Gath, growing up as a Philistine. Because if you think about it, he has almost like these Spartan-like qualities. And, and clearly, he was from the lineage of giants. He had four other brothers who were also giants. And so you think about it, the moment that he was old enough to throw a punch, he was probably being shaped into a warrior. And so I can, I can see the Rocky Four music going, and he's running up a hill, and you know they're, they're, he's doing like sit-ups, and they're you know, karate chopping his stomach as he's going, whatever it might be. The thing is, is we see Saul later on say that he was a man of war from his youth. Guys, Goliath was no joke. He was a bad man, Majama. And boy, did he know it. He knew that and he had pride in that. So let's continue. Verse 8, it says, Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, uh, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel to this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So guys, right here, Goliath goes out and he challenges the Israelites to single combat. Of course, being the behemoth, massive wrecking ball that he is, he knows his advantage. So for a picture of what this would have been like, let's say that our church Looking around in here, we were all of a sudden the Philistines, and we were facing off, let's say, um, Irons Middle School. And so even if they sent out their champion, and we were to say, um, we were to send out, hmm, let's see, uh, who in here is pretty intimidating? Uh, Santos, uh, <laughs> he's pretty intimidating. Um, do you suppose that Irons Middle School, their, their biggest 7th or 8th grader, do you think he'd ever have a chance against Santos? Pastor Ruben's shaking his head, yes. Of course not. You know, when we think about it, I, I did a teaching on Jesus talking about what he might have looked like. Do you know the average height of a Jewish man in Jesus' day, uh, nearly a thousand years after this period, was only 5'1"? And so you have Goliath... Nine foot six versus um, what we'll find about David is potentially a teenager. I mean, he could be in the four foot range. I call my wife short. That's messed up. Okay. So, mind you, 
Goliath is putting out this single combat. You beat us, we'll serve you. you we beat you, you serve us. Um, challenge, because he's their champion. And um, we see that they were never really going to honor this method of fighting. When their champion is defeated eventually, I don't want to hashtag spoiler alert, I don't want to ruin this thing, they were never going to become Israel's servants. It was like one of those, um, my friend used to say, heads I win tells you lose, and he'd say it really fast, and so you'd be like, what? Did anybody get that? Okay, heads I win tells you lose, and you're like, okay. And um, that was their situation. And so in Goliath's eyes, what he was doing when he was issuing this challenge was, I'm just playing with you. I'm just toying with you. Give me someone I can destroy so we can rule over you. In his eyes, it was a done deal. And we see that it went on for a while. Verse 11, it says, When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul, the people's champion, the guy who in Israel is already head and shoulders taller than anyone else, he is shaking in his proverbial or literal boots. And then we see what's happening with the rest of the children of Israel. Fear is setting in. Fear is setting in and it's taking grip of everything that they're doing because this was one of those situations where um, in their own strength, it was unwinnable. Uh, if we think about it, and we look around the room tonight, what if one of us had to agree to be in a fight-to-the-death battle for our freedom tonight? Not only the freedom of the folks that are in this room, but all the precious little souls in the children's ministry back there. And you're like, I don't know how to fight. But what if... What if a guy like Goliath came in and said, you fight me, and if I kill you, then we'll serve you, and if you kill me, or if you kill me, then we'll serve you, but if I kill you, everyone in that room, everyone in this building is my slave for the rest of their lives. Can you imagine the weight of that? The freedom of our families, our friends, our children? To reference Marty from Back to the Future, that's heavy. This was an unwinnable situation in and of their own strength. Verse 12. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. And his three oldest son, the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul into battle. The names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and, uh, and the three oldest followed Saul, but David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep. Now, if you've uh, been reading through 1 Samuel, which we haven't tonight, we've already been introduced to glimpses of David, but here for our story's sake, we are introduced to David, who is the equivocal opposite of Goliath. Because on the one hand, you have a guy who's been raised as a warrior. The second one is the youngest in his family, and we see that he's a shepherd. One man of war, one man of worship. A few facts about David. 
Uh, if you know through his life story, he's a killer songwriter. I probably shouldn't use the word killer just yet because he hasn't taken Goliath down. But um, honestly, he's great at open mic night. We find that when King Saul had the spirit of the Lord leave him and a, distress, a distressing spirit came in to basically um, distress Saul, the only thing that could take away uh, Saul's anxiety was David's coffee shop tunes, him busting out his harp and playing some Coldplay or whatever relaxing style of music that he was jamming down. And so not only was David a killer songwriter, not only did he have an amazing heart to write psalms, not only was he a skilled musician, but he was also gainfully employed because he held down some jobs. Uh, shepherd for his father, working uh, for his family business. But then again, he also worked as Saul's off and on armor bearer. But at the time, you know, maybe he just graduated high school, so he's, he's, he's going between, you know, working at home and, and doing the, the whole uh, King Saul thing. And then, oh yeah, he was also the future anointed king of Israel. Samuel had come, and if you remember the story, Samuel had saw Eliab, David's oldest brother, and he's like, surely this is the next king. And, and, and God looks at Samuel, and he's like, no, no, no. You see the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. And so they went through all, other, all the other brothers. And finally, Samuel goes, Is this the only, are these the only sons you have? And they're like, hey, we got that weird one out in the field watching the sheep. And he's like, go get them. We're not going to eat until it's that time. And so they bring David in, the youngest, which would have been a huge uh, change of, of uh, Jewish tradition to not go with one of the firstborn. And they anointed him as the king of Israel. And so this young man also had the description given to him by Samuel as a man after God's own heart. And still, while we find out that he was mad skilled, he's the youngest of his family and he's good looking, but he's probably not a hulking guy or a really experienced warrior. So verse 16, and the Philistine drew near and presented himself for 40 days, morning and evening. 40 days this went on. The, the, the children of Israel on one side, the Philistines on another, both kind of in this stalemate, and the, the Philistines were just toying with them, waiting for the Israelites to send out their champion. The number 40 in the Bible is interesting because it's the number of, of testing and trial. And I was thinking about um, today is May 14th. What was 40 days ago today? Or, I'm sorry, it's June 14th. I'm, my brain is broken. Today, 40 days ago, would have been May 6th. That's a while back. That's a month and 10 days. If you think about it, the kids would still be in school. The parents would be like, oh, no. Or maybe you'd be thankful because of child care and all that. Um, some of you high schoolers wouldn't have graduated or haven't moved on to your summer jobs yet. It's, it's crazy to think that this went on for 40 days. And every day that went by, Goliath's pride would grow and Israel's fear would take a little bit more hold. Now I have to ask, do you think over those 40 days, the children of Israel were looking at God going, what are we going to do? I mean, day one, you're like, well, somebody's going to step up. Day two, you're like, come on. <laughs> By day 15, you're like, ah, oh, this is weird. 
day 40, you're like, God, help. And that brings us to the question, is God ever late? No, of course not. Everything happens in his time. And sometimes the trial and the testing that we go through is what God is allowing to happen. And and we think of even Jesus being tested in the wilderness before the start of his ministry. That was all for a purpose. Verse 17, we're going to read a few verses. It says, Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an epithath or an ephath of dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. And so Jesse right here makes David the cheese pizza delivery man. He's got to run out and take some food to his brothers. And in verse 19, it says, Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting for the battle. It was a morning ritual where the both armies, as it said that Goliath had come out to challenge the morning and evening, both armies would go out and they would get in their, their battle lines. Uh, maybe if you've seen the movie Braveheart, you know about the battle, like the, the armies yelling at one another, very, you know, just kind of like trying to intimidate one another. And so they would go out and David was arriving just at that time. And so it says for the For Israel, in verse 21, for Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hands of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to to the same words. So So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the men, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches and give him his daughter and, his, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel." This is kind of wild because this has been going on so long that, that Saul has uh, resorted to bribery, essentially, for someone to come and take on Goliath. Someone that he could make into his son-in-law, someone who wouldn't have to pay taxes. And raise your hand if that's kind of your dream thing for you to happen. I mean, you're like, please. So um, David right here is introduced to Goliath, and it says in verse 26, Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And then this is one of my favorite lines in the whole thing. He says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David, like right here, he's just introduced to this whole thing. He even hasn't had his morning coffee yet, and he's already like angry coffeeed out. And so verse 27, it says, And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So it shall be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? 
And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? And then he turned from, from him toward another and said the same thing. And the people answered him as the first ones did. <laughs> All I can say is uh, siblings, right? How many have brothers and sisters in here? Man, you know, when I was teaching this to the youth, I said, haters going to hate. And really, David's not trying to, you know, like, Eliab's like, you just brought popcorn so you could see a battle. And David's like, no, that's not the case at all. I'm just, I'm trying to find out this, this ugly dude is defying the armies of the Lord God of Israel. I'm not going to stand for that. He is upset. And so verse 31 says that when the words... Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they were reported to Saul, and he sent for him. David cannot believe what he is seeing, a giant defying God. And so since David is talking such a big game, they send him to Saul. Verse 32, then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I mean... For me, I'm so like impressed with David. There's no pause. There's no like, well, let me consider, you know. I mean, he is all in. And we look at Saul's response in verse 33. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him for you are a youth and he is a man of war from his youth. Right here, guys, we see a characteristic of David. We, we, in studying this verse, we find that David could have been anywhere from the ages of like 14, maybe through 19. He's a youngin'. He is a little dude. And we, we're going to find out that he's got a lot of experience. But if you think about it, this battle, from a, a purely physical ability standpoint, doesn't make any sense. Verse 34 but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear came to take a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb out of its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bears. Oh my. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. And so, guys, tonight, uh, I want to give you three observations uh, about David, three observations about our Christian faith that we can get from David. And the first one is actually pulled from these verses. It's observation number one. It's God is preparing you today for your tomorrow. Observation number one, if you're taking notes, God is preparing you today for your tomorrow. We look at these verses, and you kind of run over it, and you're like, David, man, you're OG. You're hardcore because you killed a lion and a bear. And when they rose up against you, you like literally grabbed him by the face and beat him to death. I mean, he was clubbing seals before. No, okay, let's not go there. And so this point of God is preparing you today for your tomorrow, this is a point that's been taught a lot from this pulpit. And it's a super important one because we tend to forget it. I can't help but think of David, the youngest of his brothers, relegated to the job of a shepherd. Because usually, that was a job that was reserved for servants. And if you think about it, 
He could have become upset and embittered, hating on his life and asking God why he was at where he was at. Instead, David did it faithfully. And through that faithfulness, he learned how to trust in God. I'll quote Pastor Ben. This is something that God wanted to share with me so you guys can just listen. You know, because our situations, unfortunately, this is one of the toughest things to admit is that they'll usually either make us bitter or better. But do you realize that the situation that you're in now is probably God-filtered? and that he is using it to teach or to train you. He's using it to shape you. He's using it to chip away the things that don't belong, the things that that are imperfections. The the sculptor that had the giant rock, and, and when they came out to see the beautiful sculpture that he made from it, they said, what did you do? How did you come up with this? And he goes, I looked at this piece of rock, and I took away everything that didn't belong. You know, that's what God is doing in our lives. You know, and some of us are just big hunks of rock, you know, and God comes in and he's using these trials. He's using these tribulations. He's using these situations in our lives that we go through to to shape us. That's the crazy thing about the trials of life is that trials will always be a part of life. It's been said and well said that you're either in the midst of a trial, you're coming out of a trial, or you're just going into one. And you know what James would say? That's okay. Because James, in his book, in verses one, or chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I can't think of how many times maybe we've gone home to our spouses or gone, you know, into our room at night and we're like, I, I can't do this anymore. I cannot take this situation. I'm, I'm going to do something about it. And then after, of course, maybe dinner and maybe, you know, just thinking about it, you're like, all right, I can do it tomorrow. The crazy thing that God will use to convict us is maybe this is exactly where I have you. Maybe it's these things that are driving you nuts that are actually making you more of the person that I want you to be. Maybe it's that person at work who you refer to as that sandpaper person because they just rub you the wrong way that you're supposed to be praying for every day, that you're supposed to be ministering to by the power of the Holy Spirit that actually lives inside of us when we're, uh, when we're cleansed by the blood uh, redeemed sinner, or redeemed, uh, saved people, sinners saved by grace. Maybe it's that situation where you think, there is no way I can do this anymore, and God is like, just hold on. This is like David out in the field. You know, instead of being mad, why aren't one of my other brothers being a shepherd? You know what he's doing? He's learning how to be a leader. David is, is learning how sheep hear his voice. And not only that, but he's also learning the way that we interact with God. Think about Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
The picture of sheep in the Bible, the Christians as sheep in the Bible is pretty hilarious because sheep are some of the dumbest animals that are in the world. And and honestly, we can say that about Christians. You know, God hasn't called the wise necessarily. He hasn't called the mighty. He hasn't called the strong. He hasn't called. He's called, he calls us sheep. And because sometimes we're dumb, you know, but when we take those principles and we learn from them, we can learn how to be better leaders. We can learn how to be better followers. We can, be, we can learn how to be better worshipers. You know, I was thinking about this today, and I was thinking about, like, what Pastor Ben and Nathalie had gone through with cancer, and I was thinking about um, what some of us have gone through with lost loved ones or diseases or things we live with. And so many of those times, we, we want to be able to just say, God, take it away. God, take this away. Why aren't you bringing healing? Why aren't you bringing de- deliverance? And God says, not only am I using your situation to shape you, I'm using your situation to shape the others around you because it becomes part of your testimony. It becomes part of being able to relate to someone else that's going through that same thing. And so Christians, we're not expected to have a trial-free life. And, and, and honestly, if we have a trial-free life, then we need to kind of like take spiritual status of ourselves because, you know, Jesus said, in this world, you will have many trials and sorrows, but be, good, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. That's in John sixteen thirty-three. You know, and I was thinking about this this week, and you know what's sad is even the world has trials. Even people in the world have trials. Pa- uh, Pastor Ben and I were talking about the financial crash of 2007 or 2008 and how the, a lot of people on Wall Street were jumping off buildings because they had no hope. Let me say this. Firmness of our footing is directly related to the firmness of our foundation, the strength of our foundation. Because, guys, when the world was jumping off those buildings when they were freaking out, those of us that are standing on the rock, the firmness of our footing is based directly on the strength of our foundation. When the world crashes down and it looks like our car is broken down again, or it looks like our kids have run away and they're not walking with Jesus, our foundation is on Christ, and that's where we find our strength, whereas the world may not. So that's observation number one. God is preparing you today for your tomorrow. David says, the things I have been through have prepared me for this moment. I punched a lion in the face and I was able to to wrestle the bear. This Philistine will be no different. Verse 37, moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. He finally found his fighter. And that brings us to observation number two. Giant fights take giant faith. Number two, giant fights take giant faith. To David, as he walked with God by faith, this fight was a done deal. If you think about what he said, he said, The Lord delivered me from the lion. The Lord delivered me from the bear, and he will deliver me from this Philistine. 
Now, for me, a trial comes up in my life for a fight. Uh, a walk of faith comes up, and I'm freaking out. God, how am I going to make ends meet? How, how, what if this happened? How, am I gonna, how is this going to work out? But when we go back to that scenario where we imagine that David's life could have been over if he lost, everyone's life could have been over if he lost, he doesn't even consider that. He doesn't even blink. You know why David doesn't blink at that? Because of the size of his faith. He doesn't even blink when he sees the giant Goliath coming, and it's because the size of his faith. Well, that kind of faith coming by that isn't very easy. In fact, let me say this, faith is a muscle. Faith is a muscle. Watching the sheep, fighting the lion, killing the bear, they were all the undercard of this fight that he was leading up to. They were high reps, low weight sets where he was just going through. And what he was doing was through walking with God, he was building his spiritual muscles. And let me tell you this, every day is an opportunity for us to build that muscle of faith, to exercise our faith. As we've been going these last few Wednesdays through living radically, we've talked about guys like Stephen and Job, Enoch. Uh, We talked about Dorcas or Tabitha. That's my favorite name to say. What happens when we live radically is we build that faith muscle. When we start to share our faith with others, that builds that muscle. When we live out loud for Jesus, when we read our Bible in public, when we pray, when we have that, re- that, that uh, daily devotion where we come and we spend time with God, we discuss spiritual things with our kids, our spouse, those are what builds our spiritual muscles. Now, I don't want to take anything away from David as a fighter, but David's strength was in his relationship with God. It came out of his worship life, his intimate worship life and personal relationship. And David knew who he was in God and who God was in his life. He said very directly, he is going to deliver me. Here's a deep cut. What is your worship life like? And you're like, Pastor Josh, that's easy for you to ask. You're our worship leader. You're neck deep in music all the time. Guys, let me be brutally honest with you. It's actually tough. You know, I know I'm up here and I play music every week and I'm like, you're like, oh, I think his voice cracked or whatever because we're singing so much. Did you know that I'm a bit of a perfectionist and oftentimes when I listen to music, I'm not listening necessarily just for words. Sometimes I'm listening for like parts and harmonies and things. And guys, to tell you the truth, I have to work to worship. I have to get out of my own headspace. And for me, sometimes worshiping God is finding that quiet, still place away from music and just sitting and talking. You know, for David, maybe it was out in the field, looking at the stars, writing Psalm 8, saying, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who is like you in the heavens? And I want to encourage you tonight that we talk about worship, and, and it is, you know, we do worship through our music, and hopefully the music time that we have changes the atmosphere of the room, and it, it really sinks our hearts to heaven so we can hear what God has to say. But worship is so much more than music. It's that intimate connection that we have through a personal relationship with God. And, and if there's not time 
that is allotted in our days for that, then we're probably anemic spiritually. And, and that is not a cut on anyone because sometimes I find it tough to find, you know, and there's this world is like, go, 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 cell phone, text, you know, Snapchat, Instagram, whatever it is. And, you know, there's, I'm thankful that God has put airplane mode on our phones for a reason. And I'm thankful that God has allowed some of those things. And so my encouragement to you as we want to have faith like David is make time for personal relationship with God. Make time for that. And if music is your thing and, and you're like, I can focus on the lyrics and I am in the, in the shower singing to God with all of my heart, then that's amazing. And then if there's other times where you're like, I just need that quiet, still, small voice to hear God, that's a blessing too. Because we have to make a decision and we have to fight for that intimacy, that time for God. Verse 38, so, David, so Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a bronze helmet on his head and he also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these things for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Guys, we're kind of out of time with this. I, I wish I had time to preach a sermon about what works for some will not work for you and what works for you may not work for others, that God has made us unique and special, but that's a whole other teaching. So verse 40 says, then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had with his sling in his hand, and his sling was in his hand. And he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and he saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And here's where it gets good. And David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the, of the earth. And all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. From this amazing Old Testament trash talk comes observation number three. Observation number three, the battle is God's, we're the vessel. The battle is God's, we're the vessel. In his pride and in his personal power, Goliath bit off more than he can chew. And guys, it wasn't about him versus a man, but instead it was about him versus God. And that's the disservice that the world can give this story and its interpretations of it. The Crosstown High School rivals aren't David and Goliath. The local hardware store and Home Depot aren't David and Goliath. Guys, David is representing Jesus and Goliath is representing our enemies, the flesh, the world, and the devil, all filled with hate and wanting to rule over this forever. I titled this message, The Giant, the, 
versus the shepherd because it had a dual meaning. The truth that Goliath couldn't see is that he wasn't dissing the teenage shepherd that is David. He defied the living God and messed with his chosen people. He tangled with someone infinitely bigger and stronger than he ever could have imagined. David is almost like Esther in this situation. God has me here for such a time as this. He never questioned when God, whether God was going to kill Goliath. He just knew it had to be done. When we talk about this point, the battle belongs to God. We're just the vessel. This should be so freeing because we don't have to fight the Goliaths of this world. God does. We just need to walk by faith and humility to be the vessel, the tool, the instrument that he uses. And really, that should be our prayer every day. God, use me for your glory. Do you know what will happen when you pray that prayer? God, use me for your glory? Oftentimes, he will. He will allow situations to come into our lives. And sometimes we're like, oh man, God, I didn't have time for this today. But that is such an amazing prayer to pray. God, use me for your glory. Let me be an empty vessel for you to fill to do your work because you're not the one going out to fight the Goliath. God through you is. Verse 48, so it was when the Philistine arose and came near to meet David that David hurried and ran down toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead. And he fell on the face to, and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. This was a laser sight, God-driven, um, just... Uh, locked on, heat-seeking missile right at Goliath's forehead. And it says, Then David ran over and stood over the Philistine and took out his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. I, I heard a story where Saul said, David, what are you doing? You don't have a sword. David's like, That's okay, I'll borrow Goliath. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they they fled. Now, then, of course, they didn't live up to their, like, we'll serve you. Now, the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted, and they pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sharem, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. Such an amazing, classic story. David, walking by faith allowing God to use him, this heat-seeking missile that hit Goliath right in the forehead. But let me close with this. This is so neat. The whole time, the Philistines with their champion Goliath, they thought they had the children of Israel dead to rights. They were intimidating them, ruling over them with fear, much like our mortal enemies, sin, the flesh, and the devil. And on our own, we are powerless to stop those things. We can try. We could be like one of the Israelites who, who might have eventually stepped up and said, well, I'll fight Goliath. But guess what? We're never going to win that way. We needed a champion. Because you know what the crazy thing is? The gospel is right here in 1 Samuel 17. And it's found in the meaning of these locations. We go back to verse 1 and 2. It says about Sako and Azekah and Ephes Damim, and then in the Valley of Elah. 
Because the Philistines, while they were looking at the children of Israel and they were saying, we've got you right where we want you, actually it says that they were encamped between Sukkot, which means shut or fenced in, and Ezekah, which means hedge or fence. So they were literally at that point between a rock and a hard place. God says, no, you're right where I want you. And then when David representing Jesus, defeated, the, defeated Goliath, representing sin at Ephes Demim. You know what that word means? It means the end of bloodshed. The, and then the children of Israel were in the valley of Elah. Elah means tree. How do we put it all together? The gospel is found right here. Jesus, as our champion, bled once and for all. And when we and then he died on the cross. And then when we cling to that cross for salvation, we find deliverance. Isn't it amazing how God allowed all this to work together for the gospel to be in the Old Testament in a random chapter in 1 Samuel 17? With the children of Israel, their backs up against Elah, the tree, and the Philistines at the edge of bloodshed. And Jesus, when he shed his blood once and for all, we are able to cling to the cross. That's the secret of deliverance in this world from sin. Cling to the cross. The blood has been shed. The debt paid. All we have to do is receive it by faith. Guys, I'll close with this statement. God has never called us to fight Goliath. He's called us to walk by faith in the victory he's already won. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, I thank you, Lord, for this amazing story. I know, God, there was times where I stumbled over my words, and I pray that we just came out of this, Lord, glorifying you, knowing that the victory is yours, God, knowing that you are preparing us today for our tomorrow, and then knowing, Lord, that giant fights take giant faith, and that, Lord, the battle belongs to you. We're just the vessel that you use. We're just the tool. And so tonight, I pray, Lord, if we're going through any type of trial, God, that we would realize that you're using it to shape us. And Father, if we're in that place where maybe we wonder why we're at, we're at where we're at, Lord, we just come and we trust you, Lord. And out of that, God, is, is birthed a worship life, God, that is so amazing, and we exercise that muscle of faith. And so tonight, we thank you for the cross, God. We thank you, Lord. That Jesus, even in the Old Testament, Lord, you are there and you are speaking and you're reaching out and you're showing us salvation. And tonight, God, we take such great hope in you. We thank you for that cross and we worship you even now. Oh, Father, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Josh. I hope this message has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. If it has, we would love to hear your story of how it has impacted you 
or especially if you responded to the invitation to receive Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. To get in touch or to receive more information, please contact us by phone at 806-799-2227 or send an email to calvarylubbock at hotmail.com. Again, that phone number is 806-799-2227. Also, if you want to partner with us financially to take the gospel to West Texas and the world, please click on the Donate button on calvarychapellubbock.org. Thanks for listening to the podcast. May God richly bless you.